Folks, I have the, uh, the honor of introducing Dr. Robert Jones, a professor at Southeastern. He's not new to the church. Uh, we've, uh, Bob has come and given a uh, Peacemakers Conference a number of years ago, and of course he just led this weekend, this marriage seminar. It was a wonderful weekend, very, very, um, just great practical instruction for us. Uh, we were blessed to hear uh, encouragement towards the nature of marriage, um, communication, as well as roles. And today he's going to be speaking to um, reconciliation and relationships. Uh, what we've come as a church to enjoy about Bob is just his accessibility in terms of understanding it. He, he explains something and then just brings enough illustrations that it really locks in uh, within your mind, regardless of where your station is in life. Um, but not just is it is it accessible and practical, it's Bob has a very compassionate way of delivering truth to us, and I think you'll see that. It's a gentle application of truth. He, he brings it about with a sweetness and a gentleness that even if it's convicting to you, uh, I think you'll find that you will have appreciation for him speaking in the manner that he does. And he's become a friend of this church and has served us well in many capacities. So if you would uh, join with me in prayer for him, uh, as he has prepared to feed us this morning. So pray with me. Father, thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've given to us in this dear brother. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would fill him with your spirit, that he would bring forth a word of encouragement, hope, a word of truth, uh, that we might be served well in terms of reconciling our relationships and strengthening um, our relationships, that you might be honored and that we might be overjoyed. So Father, give grace to our dear brother as he seeks to serve us, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, thank you Tom, for your kind words. Uh, this is, as I've said to the group the other night, this is one of my favorite congregations around. In the top couple of churches around here, you are it. I just love this church. And, and in many ways, that's because I've uh, grown to really appreciate uh, Pastor Tom in many ways. And uh, we've had some ministry together had some friendship over the years now, one of the pastors that I highly recommend to our uh, students and to our community, so it's just been a great joy to be here. Let me thank, uh, let me thank Pastor Nick for all his work in uh, this conference, at least communicating with me, and then there's others, of course, that uh, have done a lot of work that he's thanked also yesterday. Um, we're going to look at a number of different passages of Scripture this morning. There's a handout for you that will give you uh, a guide, and uh, we're not going to cover all those verses. It's intended to be a, a study guide for you in the days to come as well. I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I grew up on the Jersey Shore, not to be confused with any current television shows. <laughs> Although uh, it's not far from where some of those you know, are supposedly uh, taking place, uh, apparently. Um, and uh, one of my memories in high school was failing my first driver's exam, and I had to go and retake it. I had a girlfriend who helped me to drive me there, and uh, I took the exam, and I failed, and I had to go back and do it again, but I got my license. So, finished my high school days in Jersey, uh, up to New York for college at the King's College in Briarcliff Manor, New York, and uh, from there, went to uh, Illinois, where I studied for a couple years at Trinity Divinity School, uh, got married, we moved out to Iowa, and, and, 
And all that time, I had retained my home address in New Jersey, and my Jersey license was fine to take me uh, as far as it took me. But now, as a married man, you know, in Iowa, I was able to keep it one more year. But when I moved back to Illinois for my final year of training at uh, seminary, I had to get a new license. So I went for my driver's exam. And I failed. (laughs) I didn't fail the written exam. I actually did okay on that. And I know what most of you are thinking. He failed the road test. No! They didn't require one of me. I failed the eye test. I had gone for, what, 24 years at that point in my life, 25 years without glasses. And I didn't know I needed glasses. I mean, what would I have to compare it to, right? I never had glasses, so I didn't know what I was lacking. And uh, so they failed me, and I went off to uh, Sears Optical. I went and put glasses on. The entire world opened up for me. Some of you had this experience where you've been uh, deficient, you should have gotten it, and suddenly you get glasses and like, wow, things I never saw before appeared. And even things that I saw, I now saw details, like signs along the road. (laughs) I always wondered what that red one looked like with white letters on there. No, it wasn't that bad, but, but but it really was a whole new world opened up to me. I want you to think about that little opening illustration when we think about conflict. We must look at conflict the right way. Most people don't look at conflict the right way. They see it as something to be avoided at all costs. They they feel like my life is over if we're having conflict. I want you to consider with a pair of Bible glasses on now. I want you to look at your conflict differently now with a set of corrective lenses, biblical correction. That's what glasses do for us. In your handout, I've given you a lot of things there, and I'm just going to breeze by the first couple introductory perspectives that have to do with how we look at conflict. Then I want to dive right into 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with you. But we must understand three vital perspectives before we even try to tackle this. And the first one is that conflicts are inevitable. Expect them. I want to speak to all of us today, but, but because of the theme of the weekend, I want to give some special attention to, to marriage here. And uh, as I mentioned the other day, that uh, one of my favorite books on marriage is with this great title, um, When Sinners Say I Do. When you put two sinners together in relationship, there will be conflict. I've talked to newlyweds as I've counseled people who are shocked that they're having this degree of conflict. And I try to assure them, okay, it's okay. Calm down. We'll work through this. It doesn't mean that you should not have married. I mean, can you imagine Adam and Eve upon discovery of whatever conflicts they had saying, well, Maybe this wasn't the right thing to do. Maybe this wasn't God's will after all. No, no, don't let the presence of conflict call into question whether you should have married or not. You put two people together, they're going to fight. That's what sin is all about. The second perspective we need to have is 
we have to be active and diligent in resolving them. Actively, diligently, and quickly. Let me give you a, a, a taste of these texts that I've listed for you. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled. Conflicts are things we must pursue. Settle, settle matters quickly with your adversary. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. I strive always, Paul said, Acts 24, to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I don't want conflict to be, remain unresolved. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then Paul in, in, in Hebrews, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, flee the desires of youth, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Pursue these things. Hebrews 12, make every effort actively, quickly, and diligently. And then to remember this, that conflicts are opportunities. It is in the midst of conflict that God works his redemption on the scene of Genesis 3 and following. And it's in the context of conflict that God is going to change you and me and give us opportunities to please God in new and fresh ways as we learn new things about God in the midst of the conflicts we face, about God's patience, about God's power, his forgiveness. And as we have opportunity to serve that other person. So rather than something to be avoided, it's something for us to seize with God's help. Now, how do we do it? That's what I want to walk you through today. And I want to suggest to you three steps, three uh, commitments that we need to make as we think about conflict. And brothers and sisters, I, I really want to encourage you, this is not solo effort. We must encourage and assist one another in this task. Okay, the first step, seek to please God. What does it mean to please God? Well, what does it mean to please anyone? I can tell you how to please me. Do what I want you to do. It's really not much more complicated than that on what it means to please God. To bring God delight, to bring him pleasure, he is a person. We're not merely looking at standards and laws. We do look at the standards and laws of Scripture. But it's not only that. We recognize that God's law is a reflection of God as a person who has redeemed us. And so we seek to bring God delight by being and doing what God desires. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In the first eight verses of this chapter... Paul has been deliberating in his mind about his immediate plight. Will he live on for a number of years more? Or will he die from martyrdom, from being persecuted, and go to be with the Lord? And he's weighing back and forth what's going to happen in these opening verses. And he talks about, as long as I'm here in this body, I'm not with the Lord. But if I could go from this body, I could go and be with the Lord. So let me pick up at verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident. Know that as long as we are at home in the body, that's in this life here, we are away from the Lord. 
We live by faith, not by sight. We believe there is a Lord. We believe there's an eternity to come, but we don't see that because we're in this body right now. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now look what Paul says. So, or, or therefore, conclusion, we make it our goal to please God, ready, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Whether this or that, there is something more important than where I live, than whether I live on or whether I die. There's something more important than all this. It's that I seek to please God. I make pleasing God my goal, whether this or that. Can I give you a couple more this or that's here? Whether my spouse treats me well or treats me poorly. Whether my church treats me well or treats me poorly. Whether that physical problem that I'm dealing with gets healed in this life or doesn't get healed until the life to come. Whatever, I have but one goal. So many things I can't control. Those whether this or that, I can't control that. I can't control how someone treats me. But the one thing I can control, with the power of the Spirit of God, is I can seek to please God in each and every situation. In fact, here's a really helpful truth in the midst of conflict. No one can stop you from pleasing God. No one can stop you from pleasing God. No matter how they mistreat you, no matter how they either actively mistreat you or ignore you and write you off and cold shoulder you, no one can stop you from pleasing God. That's what Paul holds out for us. This is kind of like Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, I have learned to be content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in poverty or in want, I have learned to be content. I have learned to be content. Whether my wife does this or does that. Whether my husband does that or does this. I have learned to be content. Philippians 4, 11 and following. 2 Corinthians 5. Look down a few verses into chapter 5 still and down in verse 14. In these intervening verses, Paul has reminded us of the judgment that every believer will face before God. Not unto condemnation but unto uh, rewards. And then Paul talks about what's motivated him to be an an apostle in verses 11 and 12. I'm going to skip right down to verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live, that's the believer in Christ, 
should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so whether you use the language of pleasing God, as verse 9 does, or living for Jesus Christ, as verse 14 and 15 do, the same truth is here. That in the midst of the changes of life, in the midst of all the things you can't control about your relationships and the behavior of your spouse and of your children and of your friends and of your parents and all that, in the midst of all that, you can seek to please God. You can seek to live for Jesus Christ. And we live for the one who died and rose for us. As we've sung this morning about God's grace that, that, that changes us, that gives us life, but also teaches us how to do right. Really like that line in that in that song. Okay, what does it have to do with marriage? Let me draw some implications for what this means for us in our marriage. Failure by you and or, and usually and, despite your thought it might be your spouse, but usually it's you and your spouse, to please God is the ultimate cause of all marriage conflicts. As we said the other night, it doesn't come down to what happened to you in your past or what's happening to you now. It's not physical problems. It's not even the devil that makes you sin. The bottom line is the diagnosis that's the deepest and most profound diagnosis of any marital situation is that someone in this room, someone in this relationship, and probably both, are not living for Jesus Christ here. Because God guarantees, as we seek to please him, one can um, experience his joy and peace. This goal keeps your focus on God. I, I'll tell you when I have fights with Lauren sometimes, and um, I, I'll tell you what happens there. I'm, I'm walking away saying, I can't believe she said that or thought that or did that. My focus is on her. Or sometimes my focus is on the issue. She thinks we ought to do that. No, she's wrong. And here's the three reasons why. I know I'm right. You know, I have never lost an argument in my mind. Have you? <laughs> I mean, man, I just have this thing nailed down. Right? But see, you see where my focus is at that point? I'm focusing on her. I'm focusing on the issues and how I'm right about whatever it is. And see where my focus is not? I'm not focusing on God. It's not, Lord, what are you trying to do in this situation? God, what are you trying to teach me? Lord, Lord, well, maybe I'm kind of arrogant about I'm always being right here. Pleasing God will change your focus when you're having conflict. It'll also pace your efforts. What do I mean by that? Most of us in this room don't like conflict, and therefore you seek to avoid conflict. You escape you won't bring things up. You don't want to talk about the issues. You will procrastinate and procrastinate as long as you can until the decision has to be made or until you just blow up. Pleasing God will push people like you and me. I can't sit back and do nothing about this. I must go forward. I need to go talk to that person, even though I don't want to. God, I want to please you, and you want me to go talk to that person. Now, a lesser minority of you in this room, perhaps, are on the opposite side of that spectrum, okay? You like conflict. You're the, we need to talk this out. 
you're an in-your-face person. And, and, the, and the saliva's already coming down your lips there as you're thinking about, I get to talk about this. We're going to work this through. I think of this one couple I counseled, and you know, she just cringed every time the phrase came up. We need to sit down and talk about this. She was such a fearful person. He was such an aggressive person. Well, here's what pleasing God will do for you who are more aggressive. It'll harness you. It'll give you the, the, the divine and holy woe. Whoa. Slow down here. You need to go talk to God before you go talk to your spouse and confront. You need to have a face-to-face with God before you're in the face of that other person. Pleasing God will, will, will pace each of us to have that right kind of balance there. Now, good news. If you both please God, reconciliation is guaranteed. I love telling couples this. I can guarantee something for you. Joe, I cannot guarantee. I can guarantee, Joe, that if you seek to please God and live for God and and follow the Christ-centered counsel of his word, I can guarantee, Joe, that you will be a more godly man and a more godly husband and, and a more godly dad if you have children. But, Joe, I can't guarantee to you anything about your marriage. Mary, I can guarantee you that if you follow Christ, you will be a more godly woman and, and a more godly uh, 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 wife, and if you have children, a mother. But, Mary, I can't guarantee to you anything about your marriage. But, Joe and Mary, I can guarantee this, that if both of you follow Christ, I can guarantee your marriage will be peaceful and growing and joyful. I can guarantee that. Now, that takes to the next point. What if the spouse doesn't please God? You can please God. Right? No one can stop you from pleasing God. In fact, you can find God's experience, you can experience God's blessing and favor. You can hear his voice well done good and faithful servant if you seek to please God. So that's the starting point, seeking to please God. From that perspective now, we move to the second step, and that's the step of of repentance. That's the step of self-examination. That's where we now look at our own heart before God. James chapter 4, a passage perhaps that's familiar to to many of you. James chapter 4 where the writer James diagnoses the source of conflict. What causes fights and quarrels among you? I love the fact that James is asking us the cause. He's not a behaviorist to merely say, you know, you're fighting, stop it. No. Why? What's going on? He's going he's to take us to the heart. And he tells us, don't they come from your desires, that, that battle within you, that war within you, that, that are uh, uh, fighting inside of you? You want something, but don't get it. You, you, you can't get a clearer and more, more simple, and I say simple, not simplistic, because it's quite profound, but more simple in the sense of a clear understanding of where the conflicts are coming from. There's something that I want that you are not giving me. I want you to do something or I want you to stop doing something. 
and your failure to do what I want or stop doing what I don't want, that is the reason there's a conflict. And it's all about me and my heart. And what's fascinating about this text is that these are not desires for evil things. These are desires for good things, things that God even will give often if we follow him and, he, and if, he, if it's his will. God has a sovereignty about these matters, of course. And so what he's talking about here is what we might call a, a ruling desire, a desire that becomes inordinate, that becomes controlling, that becomes demanding. I want, not only do I want, but I want, you see. How can you tell if a desire is ruling you? Let me give you three little tests here. First, when I think about it too much. When I'm preoccupied with a desire for my wife or husband to give me what I want. I need this. I've got to have this. Why won't he? Why won't she? I sure wish she would change. I sure wish he would stop doing Some people call this the shower test. What do you think about when you're in the shower? It's a pretty mindless activity, right? Most of us have learned how to do the shampoo and soap by now, right? It's pretty mindless. Most of us, anyway. Some of you maybe still are. Um, What's occupying your mind? Or here's another one. Do I sin to get that thing? Has this become so important to me that I... I have to have it, and I'm going to therefore manipulate you. I'm going to try to to make you feel guilty. I'm going to guilt you into giving me the thing I want. Well, if you were really a good spouse, or if you really were following the Bible, you would do this or that. But, But at that point, honestly, is your heart saying, I really want the person to do this because I want him or her to to honor the Lord? No, it's all about me. I want that person to do what I want that person to do. And so I sin to get that. I pressure, I, I push. Or the flip side of that, I sin when I don't get it. Well, then I pout. Then I pull away. Then I attack you. I slander you. I gossip you. I tell all my friends about you, or I tell our small group. In subtle ways, of course, in Christian ways, but they're very unchristlike about your sin. I slander you. My favorite definition of gossip comes from Jack Miller. Um, confessing someone else's sins. Yeah, that's what I can do. And I've learned to do it in subtle ways. And it's all because I'm not getting what I'm getting. I put a little diagram in, in the uh, handout for you there that I like to use. It illustrates this for me quite well. Uh, it's a throne diagram, and that's a throne within your heart with the uh, cross symbolizing Jesus ruling the heart of a Christian. Underneath, you see the letters A, B, C, D um, right, right through there. Each of those letters refers to a desire that you have. That's not an evil thing. I want my spouse to listen to me better and care for me better. And, you know, none of that's evil. It's all good. And you see, the way those letters are placed is they're placed under the throne of Christ's lordship. 
And as long as they're placed under the throne of lordship, all is well. We live with unmet desires. I want things for my wife to do and be and my children. And, you know, that's the way we live. But we learn contentment by by having them underneath, even though they're unsatisfied. The problem is that any one of those desires has the, the capacity to sprout legs. So if you've got a pen there, you might want to put a pair of legs under letter E, for example. And then, uh, and, uh, you know, you, you kids can follow this one if you want. You know, take letter E and just have it kind of go right up the side of the throne there, up the staircase. Right up the side there. That's what it's doing. Those desires become controlling. They, they, they get steroidal, all right? They, they get empowered. They start climbing up the throne to the point of competing for the lordship of my soul in a situation that I'm in at that point. Now, you know, I'm, I'm a professing Christian. I'm a Christian. Jesus is Lord, yes. But you see, there's competitors to his lordship all the time, particularly in conflict situations, particularly when the sinner that I'm married to might sin. Because that's what sinners do, by the way. All right? They sin. And, that, and, and that's where I'm, I'm tempted then to let something else control my heart agenda. And so the smartest thing I can do is to recognize this is what's going on. When I'm in that conflict situation, I'm getting frustrated, or or I'm feeling very anxious about something, or I'm feeling very down and depressed and discouraged about something. Know this, there's something in my heart gone awry. There's something in my heart that's disordered. There's some kind of desire that I'm having that's getting control of me. And I need to repent, not of the desire in and of itself, because usually it's not an evil thing, but I need to repent of the rulingness of that desire, of the way I've allowed that desire to, to ascend the throne, the way I've allowed the desire to control my heart, to become more important to me than anything else, including at that point, both my God and my wife or my husband in your case. I need to then refocus on the grace of God. God has given me everything I need for life and godliness. I can learn to live with contentment, with even with joy, even with desires for my spouse to change that are not satisfied. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And as I recognize what's going on in my heart, and I see that out of the heart has come my, my sinful words, we talked about that yesterday morning in the marriage conference, I then need to go and make things right. And uh, Matthew chapter 7 would tell us that we are to confess first to God and then to each other, repenting of our behavior. In conflict, we start with our sinful behavior. And we go to God and we go then to each other. Jesus nails us in Matthew chapter 7, doesn't he? He asks this this powerful question that searches our hearts. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
Jesus here presents the right order, doesn't he? We must start with us. You must start with you. The temptation, he he nails us at this point. We're going to be looking at the other person's sins and their failures. Jesus says, no, you must start with you. So a searching question to ask yourself is this. Whose sins bother me the most when we're in a conflict? Whose sins bother me the most? I can't believe she. I can't believe he. Instead, Lord, I can't believe that I, rescued from wrath, delivered by the grace of Jesus Christ, that I would so treat this image bearer of you this wrong way. And so I have to make that right with God. And then I go and make things right with my spouse. And I won't take our time today. I want to make sure I get to say something about the last point. Um, Oh, I should say one thing I skipped here. Jesus assigns a greater weight, uh, uh, a greater weight, a greater heaviness to our sins. And, and I must look at my sins as planks, even, even though you might say they're minor and other persons might say, well, that's no big deal. I mean, what your spouse did was a lot worse than what you did. Yes, but God wants me to look upon mine as more serious. And so I confess my sins to God and I go to the other person. I've listed for you some guidelines you find in Ken Sandy's book, which I found just very delightful and a very powerful book. Uh, I think you have copies of that out there. The other one I'd recommend, I don't know if you have one of of those out there, is Peacemaking for Families. It's a little briefer, and it's actually aimed more at marriage and family relationships, but it's the same truths there. Um, Peacemaking for Families by Ken Sandy, where we have these great guidelines on how to make a good confession Because I will tell you, in my own marriage, I have given and I have heard, sometimes from Lauren, confessions that just don't cut it. I know I've given them that way. Okay, I'm sorry, all right? Can we get on with this? You know, that's just not a Christ-centered confession. So Ken Sandy's um, guidelines here are are really very life-changing, very powerful. Uh, I won't take more time on that one for today, but I recommend that to you. Okay, so what have we said so far? We start with step one, seeking to please God. Then we do that proper self-examination where I start with my heart. And as I see the way the demanding heart needs to repent, I then repent of that. And as I think about what I've said or failed to say, done or failed to do towards my spouse, I go and seek my spouse's forgiveness. Now what do I do? I adopt the commitment to love her in Christ-like ways. We'll let Colossians 3 start us, and then I'll end at, uh, at Luke 6. Colossians 3. Look at this picture of Christ-like relationships in general, and let's just apply this this one another passage for the body, let's apply it now into our marital relationships. Therefore, verse 12, as God's chosen people, God's elect people, holy 
and dearly loved. There's our identity. You're not a victim. You're a son. You're a daughter. If you belong to Christ, that's who you really are. With that identity, then verse 12, clothe yourselves, put on. And he says five things in verse 12. What a picture of marital relationship if this could be what our marriages look like. As I sit with a couple sometimes in counseling in the first session, I say, let, let me give you a vision of where I want to see God take you. Now, you're not there yet. But we'll help you move that way, and, and, and God will help you get there. It's Colossians 3.12. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. What would that look like in our marriages? Well, God says that uh, it's, it's, it's doable as you seek to love your spouse. Notice in verse 13 the command here to forgive. To forgive. Forgive how? As the Lord forgave you. And so the Christ-like action of forgiving. Here's a working definition of God's forgiveness forgiveness of us that we then need to apply to each other. God's forgiveness of us is his decision, declaration, and promise to not hold our sins against us because of what Jesus Christ has done. Hebrews 8 says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. There's the promise of God. God does not hold your sins against you. He held them against his son Jesus Christ. What does that look like now in our marriage? Well, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Colossians 3.13. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And so, as God has made a commitment to you, you now make a commitment to your spouse that you're not going to hold your spouse's sins against your spouse. Like God, we promise, and here's three guidelines that come from a lot of different biblical counselors, to not dwell on the person's sin. I'm not going to focus on that person's sin. Love keeps no record of wrongs. That's the 14th time my spouse, whoa, 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 wait, whoa, 14th? You keeping track? You got a ledger going on here? Erase the ledger and break the ledger. Get rid of the whole ledger activity. I'm not going to mention it, mention it to other people. Now, there are occasions where I may need to get some pastoral help. That, that's not the same thing. We're not saying you can't do that. I'm saying gossip among friends and others. And then thirdly, to not bring it up in your presence. I'm not going to bring it up against my wife because it's been forgiven. And with God's help, I learned then to forgive. I learned to listen and speak in godly ways. We covered that yesterday morning in the communication uh, part of our, our morning. And then thirdly, what does godly ministry look like? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Now, this can be a message in and of itself, and I, and I won't do that, but I want to give you some, some thoughts at this point. This applies in every situation. And brothers and sisters, married brothers and sisters, 
This applies in the bedroom. Is it truly my goal to minister to my spouse or to pressure my spouse to minister to me? 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that I have a marital obligation before God, a ministry duty to minister. And that means if my spouse desires union, I'm being discreet, desires union, then God is calling me to pursue union. If my spouse doesn't desire for whatever reason, and there may be a need to talk that through, if it's a pattern of refusal, there might be other issues that need to be addressed. Okay, you Talk to pastors and godly brothers and sisters who can assist you with those discussions. But if the person doesn't want that union at that point, then love means I don't pursue. In fact, if you both partners are doing this well, and um, my wife will tell you we've had to learn these truths, you actually get a new conflict developing. And it's, it's, it's a different and it's a good kind of conflict. I want to minister to you. No, no, I, I'm okay. No, I want to. No, you don't have to. And now we have a new conflict. Okay. And that's a lot different conflict than uh, the one where you have the fighting going on. Seek to serve, not be served. Last passage Last point, and I need to end on this because I want to give some hope to some of you here who are not in a good marriage. And perhaps your spouse isn't even a believer and perhaps your spouse isn't here today. Luke chapter 6. Yes, it's about enemies. And uh, while we should not declare uh, every person who doesn't get along with us are an enemy, there are times we, it is right to call them enemies. But, but if this is what we're to do to an enemy, let me encourage you that this is what we need to learn to do towards our ex-spouse. I talked to one or two of you yesterday about things like this during the breaks. Um, this is what God wants us to do. Let me give you a very simple model. If you can let me visualize this, I don't have an overhead or anything for you today, but it's very simple. Luke chapter 6. Jesus says in Luke 6, 27, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. The passage there is a unit. It begins in verse 27 with the call to love. If, if you put in the top of your mind or the top of your paper the word love. If you look at the end of the passage, which we're not turning to now because of our time today, it says that you're to be merciful as your Father is merciful. Put that word at the top of your mind as well. Love and mercy. And realize that, that God has acted toward you with love and mercy. Now, let those twin, those, those pair of, of graces drive your strategy, your game plan, your agenda on how you're going to serve that person who is enemy-like. 
your ex-spouse, that person who hates you, the, the, you're, you're in a separated relationship and, and you don't want to be there. You want to, you've worked hard for the marriage and it hasn't come together. Let love and mercy guide you now and draw three columns. Do good, bless, and pray. Let love and mercy drive a three-column agenda for you. How does God want you to handle this ex, this person who's separated, this person who won't reconcile with you? Driven by love and mercy, you're going to seek to do good. If your enemy is hungry, feed him, Romans chapter 12. How can I do good to this person? Secondly, how can I bless this person? How, how do I speak well about this person among my friends and not down talk them? My blankety blank. No. My ex is not following Christ. That's a fact. You don't have to say he's a blankety blank. How do I speak well about him? How do I speak well to the person? Maybe we can get the whole thing of godly speech right into this category. What does God want me to say? How do I respond when he or she picks the fight and provokes and says this and kinds of tries to push my buttons? And Brothers and sisters, you're not a machine. You don't have buttons. You're a son and daughter of the living God. He can enable you to respond differently. You're not a, a machine. And then thirdly, how do I pray? Do good, bless, and pray. And that's a strategy. It's an outline I use regularly when I'm trying to minister to people. And I hope that helps some of you. Because uh, you know, this is going to be a hard weekend, as I said at the beginning, for the, uh, those of you who are married. This is going to be a hard weekend. Expectations are spiking. You really want your marriage changed or saved. These principles today. Please God. Your spouse can't stop you from pleasing God. Seek to please God. Hear his voice, well done, good and faithful servant. Find the joy that comes from him as you seek to live and obey and live for him. And then do the ruthless work of self-exam. Own the fact that these things you keep calling desires, are, uh, call needs and I have to have are not really things you have to have. Humble yourself. Dethrone those things. Go to God and confess. Go to that person you've wronged and ask them to forgive you. And then adopt the new attitude of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience because you are chosen, holy, loved, and forgiven. And, and, and go forward seeking out of mercy and love to do what? To, to serve and to, and to do good and bless and pray. Let me lead us in prayer here at this point and pray for you and for various marriages represented here among this body. Father, we do humble ourselves before you today. We know that there's a lot of truth here that I've tried to, tried to uh, pack into a one-message shot. But I pray that the seeds of today and the scriptures that we've hinted at and, and looked at would take us further. Would you help my friends here? There are marriages here that are strong. Would you in, 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 protect them and guard them? And would you energize those people to be able to minister well to others whose marriages are not strong? And for those whose marriages are uh, strong, or, uh, not strong, or even on the edge, or even, even hanging by a thread, Father, would you by your spirit take 
the truths of your word and bring them home today, turning hearts toward you. And we pray for our, our, our brothers and sisters here who, have, who are separated or have divorces, that, Father, you would help us to have a, a loving, Christ-centered heart even towards others who have wronged us. And so, our Father, we commit ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name. Amen.